The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. It's time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel with Pastor Ray Greenlee. Today's sermon is pre-recorded. I am free to walk in the ways of the world and still call myself a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm ashamed of that gospel. The gospel that says, I am justified by faith, I am covered by the blood, I am saved, and now I am free to walk in the world and carry out my own desires. I'm ashamed of that gospel because it is no gospel. Jesus cannot take a person and rescue them from the bondage of sin if he can't rescue them from that bondage of sin and put them on their feet and and bring unity in their family, bring healing with their children, bring release from the bondages of sin in their heart, if he can't do that, surely he cannot take us into the heavens and for eternity. I mean, if the blood of Jesus Christ cannot break sin's power over us, How can it save us for eternity? It can't. And yet the gospel that's being proclaimed across America is a gospel that says there's no power. You have to continue walking in your sin. And not only that, you should be comfortable walking in your sin and you should have the assurance in your heart that you're saved even though you walk like the devil. I'm ashamed of that gospel. I can't participate in it I can only speak in ways that expose it and cast it down. I want a gospel that is really good news. The word gospel means, literally in the Greek, good news. Now, I need some good news to know that I am freed in Jesus Christ, and I can walk in victory, loving my wife, loving your husband, caring for your children, being responsible without walking in darkness. Now it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. And that word power is where we derive the word dynamite. So we could easily read this because it is the dynamite of God. It is the explosive power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. So what we're talking about today is a gospel of immense explosive power that when it goes off inside of us, we become new creatures in Christ. It's not a weak, wimpy gospel without power. I mean, how many of you have said, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus I want to be a disciple of Jesus until you hear the next tune that turns your heart toward darkness. Or I want to be a follower of Jesus, and then some lust rises up in our heart, and we say, hey, I'm on my way. Jesus has no power. I'm I'm a Christian, but I'm not going to be able to walk like one. No. That's a false gospel. 
I want a gospel that sets me free. Now, let me give you just another little part of this. What if I say, Jesus Christ died on Calvary to make provision for my sins. He makes me righteous in him, covers me with a robe of righteousness, but underneath I'm completely dirty. Underneath, everybody knows it's a sham. Everybody knows it's a game. And so here comes a man. He goes into work. And at work, he cusses like the rest of the guys. He tells dirty stories like the rest of the guys. He cuts deals that are shady. He does all the things that many people in the world do. And then he says, but I'm a Christian. Is that man a Christian? No, that's no gospel. It's no gospel. Now, I'll tell you what I'm hearing as I study and pray. I'm hearing that people today are ready for an honest gospel. They don't want any hype. They don't want any make-believe. They just want a gospel that will set them free from their sin and allow them to walk in peace with Jesus Christ at peace with their husband, with their wife, with their children, no longer seduced and destroyed by the power of Satan. That's the gospel I'm not ashamed of. That's the gospel I desire with all of my heart. Now go with me through several scriptures today. I'm going to open now in the book of Colossians. In the book of Colossians, This is written by the Apostle Paul, the book of Colossians, and he's praying. Let's read his prayer. Verse 9, Colossians 1, verse 9. For this reason, since that day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyful living thanks to the father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light now when a person comes to jesus christ and he says jesus i accept you as my lord and as my savior i repent of my sin I admit that I am a sinner before you. I admit that I have no way to live a righteous life except if you will wipe away my sin, if you will forgive me for my sin because there's no way possible I can make up for all the things I've said and done. Now you understand, we are not ever going to be punished for Adam's sin. We're going to be punished for our own sin. We are not punished for Adam's sin. 
We are responsible before God for our own sin. And so now here we are. Provision has been made on Calvary to cover our sin. Now, let me stop just a minute. There is a very common belief today that Jesus Christ paid on Calvary the price for every sin that would ever be committed, past, present, and future. That's not true. Jesus Christ did not pay the price on Calvary for every sin that would ever be committed. Jesus made provision on Calvary for every sin that could be committed. There's a difference. We have now, by the death of Jesus Christ, by the repentance of our heart, by accepting him as our Lord and Savior, we have been qualified. And now will we enter in to his heart? Now follow with me. Colossians, the first chapter, verse 13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. So when Jesus Christ died on Calvary's tree, he made provision for us. When we repent of our sin, when we turn away from our wickedness, we are brought into, we are rescued. Now, stay with me. We're going to walk through several scriptures. We've been brought into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So in other words, in Jesus Christ, we're qualified for the provision that was made on Calvary's tree. There was provision made. We're qualified now by Jesus to enter into that redemption. We are rescued. Now let's take the same side trip that Paul wants to take. Now now Paul stops. We're going to take this argument up in just a minute. But first, he wants to take a side trip with us. Notice the side trip he wants to take. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on the earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, why is he taking this side trip? Because he wants us to understand who we're dealing with. When we begin to talk about a salvation process, when we begin to talk about a rescue process that we're engaged in, He wants us to know who's doing the rescuing. In other words, if I start this process with God, 
if I begin to walk with the Lord, is he powerful enough to finish it? If I begin walking with Jesus, does he have the authority in heaven to do whatever is necessary in my life to deal with me? And Paul answers that question by saying, look, we're dealing with the one who created the universe. This Jesus who came and died on Calvary is not some secondary God. He's not a a God who is inferior. He is the living God of the universe. This Jesus that we're speaking about has incredible authority. And so if he speaks to my sin, he has the authority to break my sin. If he looks at my situation, he has the authority to deal with that situation. So when we come to this false theology, this false doctrine of once saved, always saved, that teaches that that you can continue in your sin, that you have license to sin, we find there a weak God, a weak blood, a weak authority. Because you can be rescued from darkness, but you can't be rescued from the bondages of your sin. When we come to the scriptures, the Apostle Paul wants to lay it out and make very clear to our hearts that the one we're engaging, the one we're dealing with, is the king of the universe. There is none above him. The fullness of God is in him. Now, many have come to believe that Jesus, because he was born of Mary, must simply be a man, a man blessed by God, but not God himself. And Paul is putting that argument to death. He's saying, no, that's not who we're dealing with. The name Jesus means he saves. He rescues. How can we be saved or rescued if Jesus is simply a good man? The Muslims, for example, many of them believe that Jesus was a good man. He was a prophet. Buddhists that I talk with about the gospel, they said, your Jesus was a good man. But I want to tell you today, Jesus cannot have been a good man because he claimed to be God. So either he's who he claimed to be or he's a liar. And a liar is not a good man. So either Jesus is who he says he is or he's a liar. Either Jesus has power and authority, either he is God, or he's a liar. I bear testimony in my own life and in the life of many others that Jesus is who he says he is. And that he has the power to save us, to rescue us, and to break every bondage of sin that rises in your heart. That he can bring peace in the family that he can bring healing in the body and the soul, that his arm is not too short. So listen to what Paul is saying. 
this man who had nothing in him to attract our eyes, this man who was just a plain-looking man, who walked the earth humble of heart, this man is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. This is the Jesus we're dealing with. He is, verse 17, before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. This God is the head of the body of Christ. He is the head of the church. So what would you do if you were Satan? Well, I don't know. We're not Satan. But I can tell you one of the things I would try to accomplish. I would try to convince God's people that they were saved And they could continue sinning. I would try to convince them that God was so in love with them. That he would be permissive with them. Because he knows that nothing will separate the heart of man from God quicker than deliberate sinning against God. God said, the day you eat of this Tree, you shall surely die. The Satan came and said, no, you will not die. You will surely live. It's the same lie. Verse 19, God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, let's get clear about one issue. We only worship one God. And that God expresses himself in three ways. As a father, as a son, and as a Holy Spirit. But there is only one God. So when we see Jesus, we see the Father. Didn't he say that? When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When you've seen him, you've seen the Holy Spirit. So please hear my heart now. The good news of Jesus Christ is that he has the authority and he has the power. He has the ability to free his people from Satan's power. At the cross, he won. And as a child, I used to say, why didn't Jesus just end earth history when he returned home? It took me some time to begin to understand why these 2,000 years have elapsed since that event on Calvary's tree. There had to be a testimony worked out in the lives of countless men and women through the ages for all of the universe to see that the blood Jesus shed on Calvary was effective in breaking the power of sin in God's people. Keep your finger right there in Colossians. We're going to come back. 
But go with me to Galatians. Galatians, the fifth chapter. We're going to begin reading in verse 13. You, my brothers, were called to be free. See, Satan says, if you want to be a Christian, you're going to live in bondage. If you want to follow Jesus Christ, look at all the things you can't do. Look at the way you can enjoy certain kinds of music, and you can enjoy certain kinds of entertainment, and you can enjoy certain ways of life. You just can't do it. You're going to be miserable if you follow Jesus. But the Lord God of heaven said you were called to be free, not called to be in bondage. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And the spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature, they are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, we don't have time today. We're going to be dealing with this on the air. But Romans 7 fits perfectly with what's being described here. Paul is saying they're in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. He's speaking about a time before you were born again. He's not speaking after you were born again. When you read the book of Romans, and I urge you, if you haven't done this recently, to read carefully the entire book of Romans and do it in one sitting so that you get the whole flow of this book. And what you'll discover when you come to Romans 7, Paul begins to describe his condition before he accepted Jesus Christ. In Romans 7, he begins to say things like, you know, I don't do what I want to do. I, I instead do just the opposite of what I want to do. And he, and he says, who can deliver me from this body of death, this body of sin? Who can deliver me? And then you come into the eighth chapter. And you have the victorious deliverance of Jesus Christ. Romans, the eighth chapter, is a description of the normative life of the Christian. Romans 7 is the life, the normative life, of a worldly person who has not been born again. Now, just very quickly, let me say this. The flesh loves to dress up in Christian garb. The flesh loves to dress up in Christian garb. And it desperately tries, it desperately tries to do what is right. Keep your finger right there. We're going to come back to Galatians 5. But look back at Colossians, the second chapter. I'll begin reading with verse 16. Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. And obviously he's speaking here about all the old covenant ceremonial laws. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The realities, however, are found in Christ. 
Now watch. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body is supported and held together by its ligaments, sinews, and grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, but with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So what he's saying is, look, you can dress the body up and make it look really good. I've talked with non-Christians who get up one morning and say, this is dumb to smoke. I'm not going to smoke anymore. And they put away their cigarettes, and it's done. They never smoke again. How do they do it? Just willpower. They gain the victory just by their willpower. Ike Eisenhower was one of the famous Americans who did that. He went to the doctor. The surgeon general said, you shouldn't be smoking. Mr. President, then I'm not smoking anymore. I'll quit. He walked out of that doctor's office and never had another cigarette. Willpower, discipline. It's possible to do wonderful things in the life of a human being through discipline. I have a man now that I'm bearing witness to. He spent all of his life trying to be all that he could be. He's a very successful businessman. In fact, he's worth several million dollars. And he's earned all of this great income in the last 10 years. 10 years ago, he was broke. He owed a lot of money. He decided, I don't want to be poor anymore. I want to get rich. I want a money machine that I can crank that will accomplish for me a lifestyle that I can enjoy with my wife and my children. He now has that lifestyle. This is America. Through great effort and through great discipline, he has accomplished his goal and now lives in a palatial house with all of the accoutrements that a wealthy man would have. He has all the toys. Was this man righteous before God? No. He's hell-bound. If you say to him, is there a God? He'll say, no, I'm God. God is in me. I'm God. Who do you worship? Success. All that matters is being able to accomplish your goals. You don't have to be a Christian to discipline the flesh. But see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news because it says you can come to Jesus Christ and you're not going to work in disciplining the flesh. You're not going to try to dress the flesh up. You're not going to try to improve the flesh. You're going to let the flesh die. 
You're going to become a new creature in Christ Jesus. Now, I can tell you today, there is no more miserable man or woman who decides that they're going to engage in the discipline of the flesh. The last time I was with this man, he said to me, okay, Ray, I've got the house, I've got the car, I've got the company. Now, when does the joy come? Why am I still feeling so unhappy inside? I said, you don't want to talk to me about that. Go talk to a Buddhist about it. The Dalai Lama will give you his answer. What you need is more discipline. He said, but when you discover that won't work, let's talk. See, the answer to his life is not more discipline, not more Buddhist self-denial. The answer for his life is at the cross of Jesus Christ, where he dies and lays down his life and becomes a new creature. Watch with me as we look now in the third chapter of Colossians. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. In other words, the worldly man who wants to improve his state in life does so through careful discipline. Reading the right books, going to the right seminars, getting the right bank loans, doing all of the strategies, that's not the way a Christian functions. A Christian comes to the cross of Jesus Christ, and he lays his life down, and he now focuses his mind on things above. This person has now died, and their life is hidden in Christ. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander. Filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. This is the scripture that I was referring to earlier when I said you don't put on a garment of righteousness that covers dirt. The garment that you put on is who you are. I need to talk about this for a minute. When I was a kid, I went to a carnival, and there was a man there, and he had three little caps, and he had a kernel of corn under one of those caps. And he was moving them with his hands. And if I could tell him which of those caps had the kernel of corn under it, I would win a teddy bear. Well, I wanted to win a teddy bear from my mom. And I had my hard-earned money in my pocket. I mean, money that I'd earned on the farm working. And so here he goes. 
I said, well, I don't know where it is. Just show me where it is, and then I'll watch. And so he picked up one of them, and there it was. That was a kernel of corn. He put it back down, and now he started moving these, right? Moved them back and forth. So for my 50 cents, picked it up. I missed it. I said, okay, show me again. So he showed me where it was, and he started. It's called a shell game. Nothing is what it looks like. So the devil comes and plays a shell game with us. And he says, look, it's okay if you follow Jesus. I don't mind if you follow Jesus. But after you follow Jesus, after you become a Christian, you go ahead and enjoy all the things you did before because you're going to be covered by the robe of his righteousness. And so in reality, you're a pagan, but you're covered by the blood of Jesus. And now... He has the authority because you're walking that way to move you anywhere he wants to move you. He rules your life. And Satan doesn't care how many people become Christian as long as he can control their lives while they say they're Christian. So anger comes up in my heart. Bitterness comes up in my heart. What do I do with my anger and my bitterness? Now, some of you understand that anger doesn't just come off the top of my hat. Anger, especially for those of us who are men, often started when we were very small. And we were taught such crazy things. We were taught that we should never cry, that we should always be strong, and we should always succeed. And then when we discovered that life hurt a lot, and we discovered we didn't always succeed, and we discovered as we grew older that we weren't getting the respect that we deserved just by virtue that we were men. You understand, a man expects to be respected just because he's a man. And so this, this deal is moving, and we want to be respected, and we want people to treat us right, and when we're not, this rage rises up in our hearts, and we want to break something. So you watch a, a young man who hasn't gotten his way, and he walks out and he punches a hole in the wall. He doesn't know his own strength. He didn't know he was that strong until he got mad or kicked somebody or something or get behind the wheel and shove the accelerator all the way to the floor, get in front of the guy and hit the brakes. Any of you men done that? No, I know you haven't. (laughs) You wanted to if you didn't. I mean, at least we can be master on the road. And as we understand this issue of anger rising up in our hearts, that we're not getting what we want, we're not doing what we want, we're not having what we want, this rage rises up. And we say, well, at least my family can respect me. And then we don't get the respect we want from our wife or from our children, and then we really get mad. And we say, look how I've slaved for you. I did it for you. You owe me. Ever hear anything like this? Well, now the anger piece is there. And how are we going to deal with this anger? Well, we can go to psychotherapy. And we can spend years beating on a pillow somewhere. That really increases masculinity, by the way, beating on a pillow. Now, how do we deal with anger? Well, the scriptures don't tell us to go to a psychotherapist and beat on a pillow. 
The scriptures say, why don't you just go ahead and die? I mean, there's no way you're going to make it through this deal trying to assert that you're a man and that you're going to have the honor and the glory and that you're going to get your respect. So part of the hard message that I've had to deal with in my life because anger has been a very big issue in my life, part of how I've had to deal with that issue is to go into the prayer closet and lay down on the floor and begin to talk with the Lord about everything that's gone on in my life and lay out before him what I'm not getting that I think I want and lay out before him how I feel about other people until finally he got me right down to the heart of the issue. So, Ray, what you really are telling me is that you want to be the master and you want me to be your slave. You want me to be the genie in the bottle that will go and do for you everything you want me to do. And then do you think you'll be happy? Isn't that what Satan said? I will ascend up to the heavens and be like the Most High. So now I ask you the question, can Jesus deal with my anger? Can he deal with my anger? Can he break its teeth and remove it from my heart? If I serve a Jesus who says, hey, your anger is normal and natural, and that's just how you feel, and that's who you are, and I understand, and I've got you covered, and, and just do the best you can do. Boy, that's no gospel to me at all. I need a gospel that says, look, Ray, are you ready to repent of your anger? Are you ready to have me deal with it? And if you're ready to have me deal with it, I'll break its power over your life. And you won't walk in this anymore. And then I need him to come and actually break the power of that anger in my life so that it no longer rises up at unexpected times to take me captive and to cause me to be destructive toward my family. And I simply will confess before you today, that's exactly what Jesus has done with my anger. I no longer live in fear of my anger because my anger is gone. That destructive, explosive bitterness of heart has been totally removed from my soul. I didn't do it. I was constantly warned as a child growing up and as a young man, I was constantly being reprimanded and warned by others. Ray, you've got to stop punching people. You've got to stop fighting. You're going to really hurt somebody. Well, yeah. I'm sorry. I won't do it again. Until the next time. I can only tell you that on my closet floor, before the Lord, he came and changed me. And he took my anger. He took my bitterness. He took that brittleness. Do you know what I mean? Any of you here brittle? Or have you been brittle? I was raised on a farm, and we had this little flower that would grow up into a big flower, and it was called touch-me-not. You know what a touch-me-not is? It gets a little seed pod, and it's real pretty, and you just touch it, and it explodes and sends its seeds everywhere. Well, that's what I 
used to be like. Just touch me the wrong way and kaboom, I'd send my seeds of bitterness everywhere. Well, that's not true anymore. The victory came in dying and letting go and saying, Jesus, I give this anger to you. Will you now come and remove it from my heart? Will you cut it out so that I never have to deal with it again? Would you just remove it? And he removed it. There was a time when I lusted after money. I was raised in a very poor family. And I made a childhood vow. And I said, when I get big, I'm going to have enough money to live any way I want to live. I'm going to have enough money to go anywhere I want to go. I'm going to get rich. Well, I set about doing that. Oh, I knew I was called to be a pastor. So I would pastor on the weekend. And then during the week, I'd go do my training or my motivational speaking. I would go to the government. I would go to different places. And and I'd make large amounts of money until finally... I could have the Acura Coupe that I wanted, and I could have the house that I wanted, and, and I could do what I wanted to do. And I had Jesus, too. <laughs> and I discovered, quite to my shame, that church was good business. You could make a lot of money as a pastor. And then Jesus said, now, are you ready to lay it down? Are you willing to lay all your money down? And I said, Jesus, I can't lay it down. You're going to have to take it. You're going to have to take my desire for money. I still have to function and live in the world, but I don't love money anymore. The love for money was taken by Jesus. I did not have the power to break my childhood vow of lust for money until Jesus came and broke the power of that lust for money. Now, please hear what I'm trying to say to you. Whatever that lust is in your life, this is a Jesus who is fully God, and he has the power, he has the authority, and he has the ability to set you free. So that if you say, I'm a Christian... He also then gives you the power to walk as a Christian and not a make-believe, not a false Christian, one with integrity, one the world will look at and say, you may not like him, he may be offensive, but he says it and he does it. He at least has integrity, and a testimony begins to be built for the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you say, I'm a Christian, hey, let's go to the violent, action-packed movies. You say, I'm a Christian, but let's indulge in all the things of the world. You say, I'm a Christian, but I want all this. What kind of Christian are you? A weak, defeated, false Christian. Following a false gospel. Verse 16 Galatians 5, verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. 
They're in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under law. And then a whole list of things, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, a man is miserable if he falls under one of these categories. He loves his pornography or he loves his uncleanness. He's jealous. He has fits of rage. He has selfish ambition. He has envy. He, he loves his, his alcohol or whatever it is. A man who walks like that is captive to that thing. And the good news of the gospel is Jesus Christ will break the power of that lust in your heart. And you can then walk in the joy, in the joy of being clean before God, not bearing the burden of guilt, not bearing the burden of of being cut off from God, but living in the spirit of the living God. Day by day, growing in grace and knowledge, growing in favor with God. Instead of walking under this heavy yoke of burden. But I tell you, this process, this transition from these lusts, from these sins, into this joy that I'm talking about, has a prayer closet in between. You've got to go into that prayer closet with the Word of God and read the Word of God aloud to Him and stand on His promises and say, Lord, this is what you promised you'd do for me. Now, will you break the power of this in my life? I no longer want it. I hate it. Get it out of my life, please, in the name of Jesus. And you stay there in that prayer closet until the work is done. Now, it might take you five minutes. It might take you five hours. It might take you all night. You stay there until his work is finished regarding that specific issue in your life. You don't leave the prayer closet till the work's done. Now, is this your work? No, your only work is submitting to Jesus. Your work is not to break the power of lust in your life or to break the power of depression in your life or to break the power of discouragement in your life. That's not your job. Your job is to bring it to Jesus, to the foot of the cross, and lay it down there. And you have to stay in the prayer closet until you're able to get up and walk out of the prayer closet and leave it there. See, here's the problem. We love our sin. And it's in the prayer closet that that hatred of sin can finally be brought fully forth. So that when we leave the prayer closet, we leave behind at the cross that lust for money. That thing we used to worship. And we walk out clean by the blood, washed, made whole. Look at verse 7, Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. He's speaking here to people who call themselves Christians. 
The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And then verse 14, and we'll close with this. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creature or a new creation. So today I ask you, would you examine your heart? Have you been living in sin, alienated from God, cut off from life? And today you hear the word of God, that Jesus is able to deliver you. He is able to meet you. He is able to carry you. His arm is not too short. You will go into that prayer closet and lay it down before him. He will do the work for you. Christianity is not another self-help process. The gospel of Jesus Christ is by grace alone. Would you enter into that grace today? Lord Jesus, we have loved our sin. And we have believed the lie that we could have our sin and you too. But, oh, Lord, today you have challenged our hearts You've called for a people who will gain victory by the blood shed on Calvary. Lord, I desire victory today to walk in the joy and the peace, being clean before you with no bitterness, no rancor, no hardness of heart. Lord, would you rule today? I pray in your holy name. Amen.
Thank you so much for joining us today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel. Write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, P.O. Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195, or visit us online at nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. We love you. To keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, with great joy. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling.